The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. A strong book launch is the key to success for most best-selling books. But how do you launch strong if you're not already famous? Well, one tool is email, because email is one of the most effective tools for launching a book. And one of the things that I teach in my course, the Book Launch Blueprint, is to build your email list long before your launch. People ask when they should start preparing for their book launch, and the answer is kind of like the answer to the question, when should you plant a tree? The best time was five years ago. The second best time is today. Uh, But you don't always need a massive email list to have a successful launch. It is possible to have a successful launch with a modest list. And our guest today to help us talk about that is a Christie award-winning novelist who's known around the world for his snowflake method of writing a novel. He recently launched a new novel, and with a relatively small list, his book shot to the top of his category and became a number one new release on Amazon. Uh, This is the goal of most book launches, is to become a category bestseller, and that is what he did. And he's here to share his secrets, including what went wrong. Randy Ingramanson, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Hey, Thomas. Thanks for having me today. So uh, let's start at the very beginning, and let's talk about what challenges you faced as you were kind of thinking about your book launch far in the future. Well, uh, two years ago, I decided, okay, I've been working on this project since forever, and it's really time to get um, book number one in this series out the door. So the plan that I made was that in the spring of 2019, I would launch my book, right? Now, you may be saying, saying there's a disconnect here. This is the spring of 2020. You know, Did you get lost, Randy? Uh, yeah, a lot of things uh, took longer than expected on the way to Nirvana. Uh, but two years ago, I says, okay, What am I going to need one year from today when I launch? Okay, one of those things was I wanted to revamp my website to be clearly focused towards my target audience. And the second thing I wanted was to get my um, email list in good shape and ready to go, so warmed up for the launch. So already two years ago, I uh, revamped my website. So I hired uh, my web developer to... uh, uh, you know, create for me a new uh, website, and I transferred all my content over, and uh, that took a few months. It takes longer than you think it is is going to, especially if you have content on your website already. But what I wanted to do was make sure that uh, I was my new website was clearly focused on my target audience. So let me uh, talk a little bit about my history. Uh, Way back when, 35 years ago, when I started writing, I had a very clear vision for who I wanted to be as a novelist. I wanted to be the Tom Clancy of first century Jerusalem fiction, right? I wanted to write, you know, suspense kind of novels, fast-paced novels that were set in the first century in Jerusalem. Now, you might say, well, that's pretty stupid, you know, but uh, on the other hand, there's not a lot of competition right? For, for, for that niche. So um, that's what I set out to do. Never mind why, never mind whether it's rational or not. That's what I wanted to be as a novelist. And I spent, you know, 10 or 12 years writing. And my first novel was a time travel suspense novel set in 
uh, first century Jerusalem. So a physicist travels back in time to kill the apostle Paul. That is, you know, uh, the Tom Clancy, uh, that if Tom Clancy was writing first century Jerusalem fiction, that's the kind of book that he would write. And, you know, as you mentioned, that novel won a Christie Award. So that's who I wanted to be as a novelist. Now, here's the problem. Uh, novelists a lot of times like to be able to show their editors that, oh, I'm flexible. I can do anything, right? Because we believe that uh, if we can do anything, then publishers will ask us to do everything. Well, that's not true, right? This is the time for you to start singing the song about branding, why branding is important. <laughs> when you've sold a book, um, you're, and you've got fans who liked that book, what do they want to see in the second book that you write? They want to see something that is just like it, only different, right? Now, what did I do with my second novel? Well, I had this friend, John Olson, who was working, on, he wanted to write a, a Mars novel. And he said, you know, he was, you know, he, he invited me in to work on this project. And it was a brilliant story. It was a great story. And uh, neither he nor I knew that this was not a good idea that this was violating my brand. All right. Stop me if you've heard this before, Thomas. Is this making sense? <laughs> yeah, but people have an expectation. And, you know, when they go to Starbucks, they're expecting coffee. And if they go to a Starbucks and instead of selling coffee, it's selling spaghetti, you know, um, yeah. spaghetti or it's or it's selling, uh, you know, fruit smoothies and there's not a single caffeinated item in the whole store they're like what's going on and you know people like fruit smoothies but the kind of people who go to a, a starbucks are going for coffee they're not going for a fruit smoothie right so john and i wrote this mars novel and here's the problem the terrible thing that happened is we succeeded beyond our wildest dreams that novel also won a christie award Okay, so now I have won a Christie Award for a time travel novel to ancient Jerusalem, and I've won a second one for a space novel set on Mars in the year 2020. What is the connection here? There's very little connection other than these are both suspensey kind of novels, and they're kind of geeky, right? And then I wrote another Mars novel with John, and then uh, I got back on track and wrote a couple more novels in my first century Jerusalem uh uh, uh, series, and then I wrote one that was, uh, uh, you know, a contemporary suspense, science-y, quantum computing novel set in San Diego in the current day. And, you know, after six books, I had now basically got three different streams going. <laughs> and it was, that that is a marketing mess, okay? I was no longer the Tom Clancy of anything, for much less first century Jerusalem. And, and and going back to what you said, you're like, success was a mistake. If that Mars novel had been a bomb, right? If it had sold, you know, 20 copies or 200 copies and it would, you know, no one, you would have very easily been like, okay, I need to get back to my knitting and focus on first century Jerusalem. But since it was successful, now you've got a problem of which successful path do I take? And you're splitting your energies in between these two very different audiences. Because while they're both nerdy, the kind of people who are reading biblical fiction are not generally the same kind of people who are reading space adventures. 
Exactly. So I remember going to this uh, Messianic synagogue that I was involved with at the time and taking my box of Mars novels. And these are all people who had read my first century Jerusalem novel and loved it. And I, I bring this box and people come over and they start handing me money and, 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 and giving me checks. And so I start signing these books and handing them to them. And I remember, you know, one of, one of my fans looking at this book and going, what? is this? <laughs> I says, oh, well, that's my new book that you just bought. And I just signed it to you. <laughs> and she goes, and she's already wanting to return it just uh, off the cover. Yeah. And, and she goes, oh, and that's when I realized, that's when I finally understood branding was when the, when the rubber meets the road and your fans see that you have violated their, uh, uh, their, uh, trust in you, their belief in what you are going to deliver them, it takes a long time to recover. Now, the good thing is she came back a week later and says, you know, I've never read a Mars novel in my life, but I really loved that story. But this is the other thing she says, I liked your Jerusalem fiction better because that was who she was. She was Messianic Jewish, okay? Um, and so here I was, like 10, 10 years down the, the road from there uh, in, in the uh, spring of 2018. Um, and I have all these books uh, in various streams, and um, and I'm now writing a novel about Jesus, the first in a four-book series of novels about Jesus. So what should I do? The obvious thing I should do is to downgrade everything that isn't first century Jerusalem. So when I redid my website two years ago, I very consciously um, uh, made the whole flavor of it, this is Jerusalem, this is the first century. I put the tagline, I will take you on an adventure to ancient Jerusalem. And I did, you know, I had pages on that site for my other books, but I said very clearly, I don't write this kind of book anymore. I used to that was a mistake. I need to live up to the promise to you readers. And from now on, I'm going to live up to that promise. I'm never going to violate your trust in me again. And so I had huge amounts of egg on my face, right? <laughs> the only way through the swamp is through the swamp. You have to admit when you have made a branding error, apologize, and then get back to the thing that, you, that your heart is, is set on. And my heart was set on First century Jerusalem fiction, and 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 to be clear, it had been what ten years almost between the publishing of your last book and this most recent book on Jesus. It's fifteen years. Fifteen years. So that's that's like a a lifetime, especially in eBooks online, right? When you did the book fifteen years ago, indie publishing hadn't really it was just getting started, and the industry was really different. Lifeway still existed, Mark, you know, uh, Family Christian Store still existed, and a lot has shifted. And a lot of readers don't remember books or authors that they read 15 years ago. So I would say one of your big challenges with this new launch was that you hadn't written a book, you know, two years before that or one year before that, so that you were fresh in people's memories. Right. That was an enormous challenge. So actually, uh, in 2004, when I last published a novel, uh, indie publishing was not an option. It was all, you had to go with the traditional publisher route. And um, uh, so I took this long hiatus where I became a, an internationally known teacher on how to write fiction. I wrote several bestsellers on how to write fiction. 
but I wasn't writing fiction, including the dummies book on how to write fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wrote I wrote the book uh, uh, writing fiction for dummies. So it sold like close to a hundred thousand copies. Now it's been a major uh, bestseller for me. Uh, so uh, in the uh, about uh, seven or eight nine years ago, I started re-releasing all my old books as as uh, indie books, as ebooks, and they started making money. And it's been about six years since I re-released my uh, my City of God series. So the three novels that I had written that were time travel to ancient Jerusalem, and to my astonishment, in the first two days when I uh, released those books, the first book in that series, I gave away like 5,000 copies. And people immediately on reading that first book in the series started reading books two and books three. And I earned much more money from those three books as as indie books than I had from my uh, my publishers, you know, working with Harvest House and with Zondervan. So major uh, Christian publishers were not able to market that kind of book as effectively as I could uh, as an indie author. So I realized in, in the summer of 2014, I can do this. I can go back. I, I can go back to where I wanted to be 30 years ago. I can be that Tom Clancy of, of uh, first century Jerusalem fiction. I don't need a publisher to tell me what I can and can't do. Uh, I don't need a publisher giving me covers that I don't like and, and marketing me in ways that don't work for me. I can do it myself. And so I, I very consciously made myself a multi-year plan to, to go back to, to my roots and to pick up this novel on Jesus that I had started and failed on, you know, back in uh, 2005, 2006, pick that up again and write that series, which is the, the story that's been burning a hole in my brain for 15 years now. Um, so I actually used the money from my um, City of God series, the, the books I re-released in, in 2014, I used those to go to Jerusalem several times. I worked on archeological digs. Uh, I hired uh, two different editors to edit these things. I, I just basically took all the money I earned and spent it on this new series. Did you buy a hat or a, a bullwhip? Did, did you go the whole way? <laughs> I, I already actually have an Indiana Jones hat, which I got in New Zealand. I don't have the whip yet, uh, but we have a little cartoon of me that looks a lot like uh, Indy. That's that's on my website. So I have you know now been to Jerusalem four times to work on archaeological digs um, over the last uh, several years. I had been hoping to go this year, but that is not going to happen. Uh, but so I, I, I worked very, very hard for the, the last five years. And uh, so, you know, coming up this spring, when I finally got everything together, I got the cover completed uh, and I, I realized, OK, I could actually release this book uh, on Palm Sunday. Wouldn't that be cool? Only a year later than I had hoped to. <laughs> I was shooting for 2019 and the cover took me much longer than I uh, wanted. It, I had I went through like four different cover designers before I finally got the one that I wanted. Uh, but it is the one that I want. Um, and I realized basically five or six weeks ago, you know, I could really launch on Palm Sunday if I just get it in gear. So I asked myself at that point, what are my assets? How can, I, what do I have to market myself? So I had a blog with 
Yeah, embrace yourself here. 130 subscribers, you know, up into three digits. Wow, you know, <laughs> the low three digits, but it's three digits. Okay, I had an email list, which, uh, believe it or not, after 15 years of not writing, you know, just on the strength of re-releasing my novels and uh, and promoting my list that way, I still had 555 subscribers to my email list of people interested in my fiction. So that's totally different than the people who read my uh, advanced fiction writing e-zine. So I have this very large, very well-known um, e-zine for people who want to write fiction. But those are not the target audience for my actual fiction. Those are two completely different lists. So I had 555 long-suffering fans, uh, many of whom who, you know, kept emailing me every six months saying, when's your next book coming out? Okay. So and now, unfortunately, of those 555 um, subscribers to my email list, five of those were me, you know, as, as tests. <laughs> so I have uh, test uh, email addresses so I can check how how the email is going to look on, on various uh, platforms. Um, that 550 people, that's not a lot of subscribers, right? I had a Facebook profile with about 3,300 friends on it, but most of those are people interested in um, selling me their books. They're, they're novelists who, who know about me, friended me, and want to sell me their stuff, and probably could care less about my fiction, okay? Straight talk about Facebook right here on the Christian yeah, Publishing yeah, Show. Yeah. <laughs> so those were my assets. Now, I also had some skill with running uh, Amazon ads, and I also had 10 really, really good, strong endorsements from fellow authors. So that took me several months to uh, get those lined up. That's not a big platform. Notice I said nothing about Twitter. I do have some Twitter accounts, but the last time I tweeted, uh, I think Donald Trump was not yet in the Oval Office. So it's been a long time since I've tweeted. I do very little on Facebook. I might post once every three or four months when a friend of mine is launching a book. Uh, so I, I just don't do a lot with social media. Uh, and I had not really done very much with building my email list because when you have no books, when you have had no new books in 15 years, it feels a little silly to be building an email list to promote the books that you haven't written. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So that's what I had. And um, I think it was uh, uh, middle or end of March at some point, I, uh, I put the book up finally uh, for uh, pre-order on Amazon. So what you had was modest. It wasn't nothing. Right? 500, for somebody with 50 email subscribers, 500 seems like a fortune of email subscribers. All right. To somebody with 5,000 or 50,000 email subscribers, 500 feels like, you know, monthly churn, right? You're adding 500 and you're losing 500 every month. And, and so in part of this is perspective, right? For, for really big authors, 500 is, is nothing. But, you know, I know a lot of you listening, you dream of the day that you'll have 500 subscribers and you'll get there, you know, with persistence and with good uh, strategy, you'll get there. Uh, but 500 is not a lot in the tr kind of traditional publishing numbers, right? Traditional publishers want to see typically four digits of email list um, before they start getting impressed. Yeah, and I have friends who have 30,000 email subscribers. Okay, my easing has been up to in the 30,000s before I uh, called it at one point. But yeah, I will have some words to say about what if you only have 50 subscribers and you feel like it's not worth 
trying to sell to them. I have some thoughts on uh, where you should go with that because it's not that vastly different from the situation I was in. So I put my book up for pre-order. I put it at a price of uh, $2.99. Uh, and this was roughly uh, two weeks before the uh, release date. So pre-order means you can buy it, but you can't actually receive it until the release date. Uh, uh, but people can start start buying it. And once people start buying it on pre-order, it shows up on the bestseller lists and you get an Amazon ranking for the book. Uh, so I put it up on pre-order. And this is the very important thing. I took a lot of care to go onto Author Central. So that's uh, authorcentral.amazon.com. And I got all my, uh, what they call metadata in order for that book. So I put in all the endorsements. I put in uh, uh, the best book description that I could write. I put in an excerpt. I, I wrote a custom author bio just for that book. You can do all of this on Author Central. And if you don't know what you're doing, it'll probably take you four hours. If you do know what you're doing, it'll take you one hour. And we have an episode all about metadata. It's episode 40. We interview one of the top metadata experts. Uh, and what Randy is saying is absolutely true. And it's one of those really easy things to overlook. And it really makes a difference. Right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, the, the items that are in that metadata will show up in Amazon search if people are searching for uh, the, the words in there. At least that's my understanding of it. Uh, so uh, I got things set up exactly the way I wanted. And that's that's one of the uh, great virtues of putting things on pre-order is that um, your book appears, but nobody knows it's there yet until you tell them. So it's there and you can test it. You can look at the page. You can uh, fill out your author central information, get everything exactly the way you want it. And only then do you start telling people. Um, uh, so that's what I did. I spent three or four days doing that. Also, I sent a proof of the uh, paper edition of the book to a friend of mine who is a book reviewer. Uh, he, he has a, a book review site for uh, writers like George MacDonald and C.S. Lewis. So, uh, you know, this guy is no intellectual lightweight. His, his father's a uh, Nobel laureate in physics. Okay. Uh, he's, a, he's a smart guy who, who likes this, the kind of book that I'm writing. So I sent him, uh, but he was really the only reviewer that I sent, sent it to. And then roughly 10 days before the release of the book, I finally notified my email list. I did it on a Thursday night. Okay. So the next day was Friday. Uh, and, you know, I just kept watching, you know, how's the book performing through the day? And I was hoping, you know, with 550 subscribers who are, are not me, I was hoping to get, by the end of the day, 10% uh, pre-orders. I thought that would be a really good result, and 55 out of 550, because, you know, not everyone opens the email that you send. Okay, and of those who open, not everyone clicks through to the sales page. And of those who, who click through to the sales page, not everyone buys. So I was just saying, 55, that's, that's a home run if I get that many sales in the day. Well, you know, when I got up in the morning, I already had like 30 sales. So I thought, okay, that's, that's pretty good. I'm going to hit my 55. And uh, as I watched through the day, the, the ranking on the book... So Amazon ranks every book from number one to number like 10 million or so. The ranking on my book popped into the top 
30,000, and then it was the top 20,000, and then eventually it got down to around uh, a ranking of 2,600. That's not bad. And that's number 2,600 on the entire Amazon store. But in the categories I'm interested in, you know, ancient history, you know, ancient historical fiction, I was number two. Uh, and uh, in the Easter category, I was number one. In the Christology category, I was number one. You're writing a book about Jesus? That should go in the Christology category if it is a significant novel that is making, you know, uh, that is covering, you know, making Christological uh, statements. Okay. So uh, in uh, Christian fantasy, I think I got up to number two. But the, the book was performing very well on day one. And by the end of the day, I had a lot more than 55. I had like 92 sales just on the first day. So what did you put into that email? Because that's a really high number of sales for an email that only went out to 500 people. For an email that goes out to 500 people and you got 20% buying it on the first time they're notified, something's, something's happening with the wording of that email. Right, right. And that is critical. You cannot just send an email and say, hey, my book's here, buy it. Here's a link. That's, that's dumb. You need to sell the book. Even though they're your fans, you need to give them a reason to buy today. So I started off with the headline, basically, you know, my book that I've been talking about for the last five years is available now on Amazon. Okay, first thing I did is I showed the cover. Now the cover design it's a little risky for a biblical fiction kind of a book because it doesn't look like a typical biblical novel, which would have, you know, Jesus-y kind of characters and in, you know, white robes and stuff. Um, this was a book that just had the title. It had the, the series title, which is Crown of Thorns. I think that's a very strong title. It tells you what the series is about. Uh, the book, the title of the book is Son of Mary, but there's just a, really a single image on that cover, and it's an image of a ring, a gold ring. Now, obviously, that has overtones of Lord of the Rings, okay? So the very first thing I did in my copy, in, in the email, was I says, what does a ring have to do with Jesus? So I'm taking the bull by the horns. I'm not trying to evade that question. I'm, I'm telling them, look, here's a problem to be solved. What does the ring have to do with Jesus? And I explained that in, in ancient times, rings were symbols of power. But what kind of power? It's the power to give judgment, okay? When the Pharaoh gave Joseph his signet ring, that was uh, that gave Joseph the power to, to execute the Pharaoh's will, okay, to, to save Egypt from a famine. When, um, uh, in the time of Queen Esther, when the king of Persia gave um, uh, Esther's cousin Mordecai his signet ring, that gave him power to take action to prevent a genocide of the Jews. So a signet ring in antiquity always signifies power. The signet ring is the ring the king wears when he gives judgment. The king in antiquity, in all ancient cultures, was the ultimate judge. He was the supreme court. Okay, what does justice have to do with Jesus? Okay, well, that is actually the entire theme of, of book one in this series. So, so hold on, I want to jump in real quick because you're, I want to explain uh, what you're doing 
kind of in a more fundamental level. So you, you broke down the kind of, you know, what does this ring have to do? And, and you may be listening like, my book's not about Jesus and somebody else already put a ring on the cover. So how can I do this? Well, what Randy's doing here is he's creating um, itches, if you will, of curiosity, right? That he's making people curious with his text, right? And with the email, making people curious. With the book, making people curious. With the copy on the Amazon page, making people curious. And the more curious they get, the more they, the more itchy they get with the curiosity. The only way to scratch that itch is to not only buy the book, but to read the book. And that is because uh, you have two challenges when you're trying to have a book take off. You can't just get people to buy the book because, you know, your friends will buy the book out of curio- out of courtesy, right? You know, oh, yeah, no problem. $20 book, I'll, I'll do this, you know, to help you out. I'll buy your kids, you know, Girl Scout cookies, even if I don't like Girl Scout cookies. But that doesn't mean they're going to read the book, right? You have to make people curious enough to read the book and then the book has to deliver <laughs> and get them raving about it. So you, you have to have a large enough launch to get the word of mouth bol- uh, kind of boulder rolling off the top of the cliff. And that is what Randy's doing with this email. He's in, in the email and the cover and the copy all working together to make people curious. Right. To arouse curiosity. That's right. And that's what you want to do with your cover and copy. Yeah. So then I took about 500 words to talk about something that everybody knows about Jesus, but nobody ever talks about, which was that Jesus was apparently the pro- was apparently according in the eyes of his village illegitimate. Okay. So I asked the question, what did the village of Nazareth think of Mary? What did they think of her explanation uh, when she uh, showed up pregnant, you know, several months before the wedding. Okay, this is a major disaster in any small village. Nazareth was a village of maybe 200 people. It's everybody's business to know who is the blood father of this child. Why is it their business? Because if it's not Joseph, it has to be some other man of the village. Think about it. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Now, you might say, well, but of course they knew about the angel Gabriel talking to her at the, at the well or wherever it was. And of course they knew that he was the son of God, right? Well, that's, wait a second. How did they know that? How would they know that? In fact, there is strong evidence within the biblical story that nobody knew that, that Mary never told a soul. How do I know that? Okay. Because it says in, in the Gospel of Matthew that Joseph, the, the husband who was going to marry Mary, was a righteous man, and he thought that he would just put her away privately, but he didn't. Why did he not uh, give her a divorce? The reason he didn't give her a divorce is because an angel came to him in a dream and explained it to him. Okay, why did he need an angel? If Mary had told him, he wouldn't need an angel. Or if Mary told him and he believed her, he wouldn't need an angel. Either she told him and he didn't believe her, or she didn't tell him at all. Now, think about if you're 12 years old and you're pregnant and everyone's saying, who's the father? And do you just say, oh, well, the father's God. You know, uh, the angel, Holy Spirit came over me and overshadowed me and I'm pregnant uh, with the, the, the uh, incarnate son of God. If you, yeah, Thomas, you've got a daughter who's a year and a half years old, 11 years from now. If she comes, comes to home pregnant and she whips out this story of, I'm 
I'm uh, with child by the Holy Spirit. Are you going to believe that? Uh, it, would, it would be a hard thing to believe. Yeah. <laughs> I had three daughters who have passed through that age, and not one of them, if they had come home with that story, I would not have believed any one of them. I would have, uh, you know, if they were, if I was able, as given them a, a good sound spanking for telling a big fat whopper of a lie. Okay. Mary's parents were the same way. People knew in that time how children are born, and it's not because God comes down and, and makes a girl pregnant. They knew that when a girl is pregnant, it's because there's a man involved. My hunch, my very strong hunch, is Mary never told a soul, okay? And that's, and that's what you put into your story. That's the way I wrote the story. So, so whether or not it's what happened originally, and, and you make a really strong case that that very likely is what happened, but as the novelist, you get to decide that's what happened and then explore, okay, if this is what happened, then what would the consequences be? Right. This is a speculative novel, and I made that very clear in my email. Look, we cannot know this for sure. We can only guess, but I'm the author. I get to speculate, and let's pursue that and see how it works. Uh, and so... Uh, then the question is, uh, if nobody knew who the father was and Mary wouldn't say, how was Mary treated? Mary must have been treated savagely. She must have been bullied worse than anyone on the planet has ever been bullied. Every day, uh, pe people would see her and they'd say, who's the father of your child, Mary? And she says nothing. They spit her feet. They would have stoned her if they could. Okay, Mary had a difficult life, and she could never tell. She could never tell the truth, because who would believe it? Who would believe it even in her own family? If she didn't tell Joseph, and she probably didn't, because an angel did, if she didn't tell Joseph, she probably didn't tell her mother and her father either. So, the question then is, when, when you're treated brutally, cruelly for years and years and years, what is it that you want more than anything in the world? You want to have your name cleared. You want justice. That's what justice is, to be vindicated when you have been treated maliciously, cruelly by people uh, who hate you uh, for years and years and years. That's what Mary wants, okay? Now, the question, the problem is, Jesus... Uh, does Jesus know the truth about his parentage? And if he does, how can he solve the problem? Right? Because he doesn't come around, he doesn't come with a label stamped on his forehead that says, incarnate son of God. To him, to, to, to the villagers, he looks like a regular guy. Looks like a regular carpenter. So how can Jesus give his mother justice, even if he knows the truth? Okay. Um, and that's the central problem. So, so this is the pitch that you're putting into your email, exactly, to to, to get people curious. So let's let's walk through kind of then what. So you sent out the email, and you what was the? Do you remember what the open rate was on that very first email? The open rate was up around sixty percent. Okay, so that's a really high open rate in general. Although I will say one of the advantages of a smaller list is that smaller lists tend to have higher open rates. So somebody with a much larger list, you know, dreams of an open rate that high. But of so you had 60% open it and then of those people, 
you know, 20% to what 30% went on to buy? Well, uh, 26% of the total uh, went on to clicked through on that particular day and then 92 uh, 92 of those sales. So I had 145 clicks and 92 sales. So you can see at each point, there's a a drop off here. 550 subscribers, you know, about uh, 300 and some opens, 145 clicks, uh, 92 sales. Okay. And that was from the first email. Right. And that's really good, right? And that drop-off from the people who clicked to the page and went on to buy is a really, uh, really low. Uh, so it's, it's not uncommon for that to be much, much lower. And so that's an indication. What that what that communicates is that the copy on the page is really strong and the cover is really strong. And this was before you had any reviews. So one of the things that can cause people to abandon a page is that if the book doesn't have enough reviews or if it doesn't have the right kind of reviews. And so this is a really good indication. So after you sent that next, that first email, what did you do next kind of in your book launch strategy? Uh, let's see. Uh, so the next, uh, a few days later, I, I, I posted on uh, Facebook, just on my profile page, uh, uh, just saying, look, I've got this book out and I, and I, uh, I had the link to um, the Amazon page. And I talked just a little bit about, it. I gave sort of the short version of that uh, email sales letter. And I had a lot of activity there. A lot of uh, my friends from, you know, my my high school writing, creative writing teacher from 45 years ago, who I haven't seen since <laughs> 1975, posted and says, wow, I want to write you, I want to read your book, you know. So I, I had a lot of activity there and I tried to respond to everyone there. Uh, and then I, I posted a blog post uh, on my blog to my 130 uh, blog subscribers. Um, and see, each of these things got me some some pre-orders. Uh, then finally on launch day, so this was uh, Palm Sunday, uh, about a week and a half ago, I sent a second email to my my email list. And and let's just say, this is not a good time to be, e- like Sundays historically are very low email opening days on a normal week. This is a <laughs> holiday week and it's a holiday week in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> right? So right. You, have, you have a lot of things going against you here. Although probably very few other people were sending emails that day. So you probably had the inbox to yourself. Well, actually, I, I think a lot of people were sending emails. I, I kind of felt bad because in, a, in the middle of a pandemic, people are worried about survival. And uh, how can I justify launching a book? I asked myself this question. How, why should I launch now when people are worried about survival? It just feels so tacky and commercial and self-serving. But at the same time, I asked myself, do I know for sure that uh, when this pandemic is going to be over? What if it's over in a month, but I don't survive it? What if I die from coronavirus? That That could happen. I don't want to die without having launched this book. So I just put that in my email. I says, people, this is <laughs> this is real. We don't all know that we're going to be still be on the planet 30 days from now or 60 days from now. I might as well launch now as, as any time because who knows how long this is going to last. And I think mentioning the pandemic is really important because it doesn't make you f- feel out of touch. Like you, you have to acknowledge it in your emails. Yeah, whenever there's a negative, it, the, the best way to deal with that uh, is to just acknowledge it. And I was just brutally honest, you know. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I sent out an email on, on launch day. And over the course of that day and the next day, there were like another 80 sales or so. 
And then I blogged again on Good Friday. I had a little uh, Good Friday meditation where I just took some copy actually from the book and uh, posted that on my blog. And uh, and then finally on Easter Sunday, um, uh, which was kind of seven days after the launch of the book, I sent out a third email to my email list saying, uh, basically, I've had it on a special price, half price for the first seven days, but I'm going to be changing that sometime tomorrow. So get it now while the getting's good. Uh, just a very short thing. And I included, you know, one of my endorsements, I think, uh, probably the endorsement from Tosca Lee, or, or, or I, I had several good endorsements to choose from. And, and so w- let me stop real quick and explain why this is effective. Um, this is what's called, uh, this is a technique called a reverse coupon. And it's one of the only kinds of coupons you can do on Amazon. And it's warning of a future price increase, which creates urgency. And it also keeps people from complaining about you raising your price. So it's actually, it's like no one complains about an email warning them of a price increase if they have time to act, right? If you send out the email 20 minutes before the price increase, maybe people will be bothered. But the wonderful thing about this is for the person who's procrastinating, and maybe you know somebody who likes to procrastinate, right? You know, authors, I feel like this is a thing they understand deeply. Um, so, you know, some of your readers tend to procrastinate and they may procrastinate buying your book indefinitely, right? They always want to, but they'll always put it off until tomorrow. And so you have to give them some kind of inciting event, some sort of urgency, some sort of, you know, pain if they don't act now or reward if they don't act now. And the wonderful thing about a reverse coupon is that it acts as both, right? They get to feel like they got in early, they're rewarded for, you know, paying attention. And it also, you know, the idea of like, well, maybe I'm going to buy it later and pay more and I'll feel bad about paying more when I could have paid less and so I'm going to act now. And that creates another really useful bump while simultaneously giving you a higher price point moving forward. Yeah. So by the end of launch day, I, I took a look, you know, where am I at in terms of total orders, uh, pre-orders plus, uh, uh, you know, uh, other, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, let's, let me look here. I'm, I'm looking at my, uh, my notes here. Yeah. At the end of, uh, Easter, I think I had logged 364 total orders. And I would guess that probably 250 of those came from my um, email list. So 250 out of uh, you know, 550 subscribers. Uh, that means my conversion rate was roughly 45%, which is a phenomenal conversion rate. It's a very, very good conversion rate. But uh, uh, there's one other thing I want to point out, which is that... Uh, uh, the, I had about five more email subscribers uh, at the end of launch day than I did before I started the campaign. Now, I lost a couple of people who unsubscribed, uh, you know, over the course of the, the campaigns, but I gained several people. Where did those people come from? The answer is that in the very front of the book, I had several maps that I had drawn myself uh, uh, for for uh, Jerusalem and for Galilee, for ancient Palestine. And I just had a note there that says, you can get these maps free by clicking by going to my website here, ingramanson.com slash maps. And on that page, I have downloads for very high resolution copies of those maps. Those are those are hand drawn by me. Those are unique to, to my book. They perfectly fit my book so that people who are interested in my book would naturally want those maps. But there's something else on that download page, which is a sign up for my email list. So people who bought my book, 
early on in the first week or so, several of them clicked through, downloaded those maps. I can see the number of downloads on the page. And I can also see that some of those are subscribing to my email list. So there's a burst in, in my uh, newsletter subscription. And this is a very important principle of marketing. Everything that you do marketing-wise needs to point to everything else. So my email list points to my book, right? That's I use my email list to sell my book, but my book points back to my website to get people to sign up for my email list because there are people who will discover my book just by random chance who never heard of me, and I want to capture them and get them on my email list. So those of you, if you have only like 50 uh, subscribers on your email list, that's not bad. Do a, a modest launch with modest expectations. Get your book out there. Get, you know, a few dozen copies sold and get it up there on the bestseller list. Then people will notice it and they start buying it. And now those buyers who never knew about you before have discovered your book. They come to your website because there's something on your site uh, that they can download and your book tells them that they can download that thing on your website. This is called a reader magnet. And once they're there on your site, you can either uh, uh, get them to sign up voluntarily, or in, in some cases, some people just force people to, to uh, sign up to their email list in order to get that reader magnet. You can do it either way. Um, I tend to, to like not like you know to force people to, to do things. Uh, but now, your book is promoting your email list. So my hope is that a year from now, when I launch book two, um, you know, assuming we're all still around uh, a year from now, <laughs> um, that book two, now I will have grown my email list to maybe 5,000 people instead of 500. Then the launch of my next book will be much bigger and uh, it will go higher on the bestseller lists and stay there longer and it will do better at promoting my email list. So you've got this virtuous cycle. Your email list promotes your book. Your book promotes your email list. And likewise, your Facebook page uh, uh, promotes it. Everything you do marketing-wise should point to everything else. Or at least point to the email list. It's not like you point to everything at the same time, but the email list and the website are kind of the hub of the wheel. And the, as the wheel turns, each spoke is constantly kind of reconnecting with the hub, so to speak. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I, I want to very quickly go over what you're doing kind of now that the book is launched. What are you going doing ongoing to promote the book other than kind of continuing this flywheel of building the email list? Uh, so I'm going to be running Amazon ads. I've started those already. Uh, I'm going to be running Facebook ads. Uh, and also, uh, I will probably be approaching various um, uh, people who do podcasts, you know, on biblical fiction and, you know, see if I can get on their show to talk about uh, about my novel. And this is using basically the ideas from your course on, uh, on, on podcasts, yeah, promoting your book through podcasts. Uh, which is a very good course, if I can put in a plug for you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so We those, didn't plan this ahead of time. No, uh, but those are uh, pretty much the, the things I'll be doing over the next year. And you're also doing advertising right, on Amazon right. and, and potentially exploring advertising in other places. And again, because of that uh, email list connection, all of the marketing that you're doing now, you get to kind of double dip because as people read the book and as people get onto your list, then you'll be able to tell them about the next book and, and work that flywheel 
uh, like you're like you were saying. And this is how it's done. You, you're faithful with the little things, right? He, you didn't become a bestseller in all of literature or even all of Christian, right? You became a bestseller in the Easter category, which isn't super intense competition, but it was during Easter week, which arguably would be an important week to rank in the Easter category. Um, but, you know, I imagine for book two, you're going to be targeting more popular categories, more crowded categories, and kind of working your way up the Amazon uh, pyramid. Well, it, it, it was nice to be rubbing shoulders with, you know, NT, books by N.T. Wright and uh, Max Lucado and people like that. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and, you know, the Christology category, the uh, ancient historical category. Um, all right. And, and briefly, we've talked about some of the mistakes you made with branding. Um, are there any other mistakes that you want to warn us to avoid? Uh, caught me a little flat-footed here. I, I, there, there's a, a billion mistakes to make. I've probably made most of them, but they're, they're all kind of slipping my mind at the moment. The, the branding thing is, I think, the, the biggest mistake I've made in my life. It's probably cost me years and years uh, to get back from that. And it's a mistake I have also made. It's uh, when you have lots of interests, it's really easy to be trying to be all things to all people at all times. And uh, I had to go through a pruning phase, uh, just like you did, uh, a little bit differently. But you know, I'm no longer a literary agent. You know, when I first started this podcast, it was to support me as a literary agent. <laughs> and now I'm no longer an ed- a literary agent. And I cut a lot of other activities as well. In that honing that focusing is is really painful but i think it's um what allowed this launch to be as successful as it was even with how small the numbers were because you had, you had already been priming the pump you'd been getting people interested and you've been signaling in various ways through your emails through your website hey i'm no longer a science fiction writer i am committed to being a you know ancient jerusalem writer and you know writing about jesus in ancient jerusalem is a natural kind of manifestation of that, right? Because right. who's the most famous person living in ancient Jerusalem? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Right? Like, no, there's no close second, right? Maybe King David, right, is the next next most famous person. Um, but, you know, not nearly as famous. And and so it, it fit, right? And in people's minds, people who'd read your time travel books about the Apostle Paul, they're like, ooh, you know, if, if somebody's a fan of Apostle Paul, somebody's a believer, it's not, you know, they're a fan of Jesus. So it's a very easy Sell. So I'm, I'm really excited to see kind of how this does as it uh, grows its momentum. And uh, real quick before we go, uh, where can people find out? Actually, I'll just say we'll have links uh, in the show notes uh, to uh, Randy mentioned Amazon Author Central. We'll also have a link to episode 40 about metadata. I'll have a link to that review of his book uh, he submitted. Um, I'll also have a link to the book itself on Amazon. And if you want to get his maps for free, and they're maps of Jerusalem, so they're interesting maps, we'll have a link to ingermanson.com forward slash maps if you want to see um, what those look like, Randy's maps of ancient Jerusalem. And I will say, the fact that you visited Jerusalem four times doing archaeological digs, I feel like is what gives these maps value. Uh, and, you know, you didn't just like scribble on a piece of paper and make some maps or look at other people's maps. You also visited the place and dug up things in the ground. Yeah. In, in a sense, the geography dictates part of the story. So I have a map of Nazareth, actually. Um, I have maps of Galilee uh, that show you and that that limits what can happen in the story. And, and I love how it kind of gives the story context, because often when we have the maps in the back of the Bible, they're so zoomed out 
that it's hard to understand any one story. The any one city is just a dot in the story, and and it, it's hard to picture kind of like where in the, where was the cliff that Jesus almost got pushed off of, right? You know, having an understanding of how close that is to the synagogue helps that part of that story make more sense, right? Was it was the synagogue right next to the cliff? Was it a mile away from the cliff, right? How long was he being, you know, kind of muscled by the crowd? How long did he have to, to you know, disappear? And all of that has to, you know, is impacted by the maps. And, and real quick before we go, do you have any um, piece of advice, any final tips or encouragement? Uh, yeah, make a, a long-term plan and then, then follow that plan. Now, you, you can be flexible, but uh, you need to have faith in, in your plan and in yourself as a writer that, that you can execute that plan. All right. And uh, with that said, our sponsor today is the Christian Writers Institute. And I'll make the course of the week the How to Get Booked as a Podcast Guest course, since Randy, you're so kind uh, to mention it earlier. So if you want to learn how to do that, how to find a podcast pitch, how to prepare for the pitch, what kind of microphone to get, and how to do a good job on that interview, I walk you through step-by-step how to do that in the course. And as always, you can save 10% by using the coupon code podcast at checkout. And uh, Randy Ingermanson, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Thanks for having me, Thomas. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.